Well, tonight we begin a new series, and as you saw on your bulletin, there's a bunch of boxing gloves. I didn't come up with that particular picture, but I like it. I think our office manager has done a good job in putting that particular thing together because Jude is calling us to fight. Now, it sounds kind of different to call a bunch of Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, who love grace and mercy and who focus on the fact that God is love, sometimes to the exclusion of the other doctrines of the gospel and the scripture, to fight. But here you might have noticed the title of this particular series is called To Contend for the Holy Faith. That's the title of our sermon this morning. Now Jude is an odd little letter. It's odd because it's the only letter we get from an individual that we know very little about. We think that this Jude is the Jude who was the brother of Jesus himself and also of James, actually a half-brother of Jesus. This letter is full of angels, quotes from the Apocrypha, that is, uh, books that are not considered scripture but have some interesting things to say. He focuses on clusters of three Great for an American preacher who loves to emphasize three points in a sermon. And then there are also many rather obscure Old Testament references. Yet despite its oddities and its rather obscure references, it has a thoroughly modern message for today's church. Whether it's even for or especially for the American church. We all need to hear these words of a siren call to contend for our faith. Follow along as I read just the first four verses. You might have noticed it's just one chapter in your Bibles. We'll be spending 11 weeks on this particular letter. But tonight, the first four verses. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. These are the words of God. May he bless it to the hearing and understanding of our hearts as we come to him first in prayer. Lord, guide us in this your word to understand it with understanding hearts, to hear it with hearing ears, and to see the promises contained therein. Father, I pray that, (coughs) excuse me, whatever is spoken tonight might be consistent with your word or else pass away and never be heard from again. Give us, Lord, a measure of grace in hearing this word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you a question. What would you die for? What is worth dying for as a believer? Would you die for the opportunity to have the Bible in the English language? Would you uh, die for the doctrine of justification by faith alone? Would you die for the distribution of the cup 
to the people in the Lord's Supper. I mentioned those three to start with because people did die for those things, particularly in the Reformation when it started in Europe. They died for all those things, for the Bible to be in the language of the people, for the doctrines of the faith like justification by faith alone, and even for the proper observance of the Lord's Supper. But if you would not die for those things, what would you fight for? Would you fight for good theology? Would you fight for the gospel? Would you fight to have men who practice what they preach in your pulpits? Jude tells us there is a time to contend for the faith. We live in a time and day where presbyteries, denominations, churches across the theological spectrum would rather have expediency and efficiency rather than debate. Now, it's not the confrontation that we should love. None of us should love confrontation and fighting. That's not something that we should enjoy. But it's the faith that we love that we are called to defend. What about you, Christian? Are you ready to fight? In this passage, just these four verses, we're reminded by Jude that believers should contend for the faith. He gives them an exhortation to contend, and he reminds us that when we contend, we must do so at times warily. First of all, believers should contend. This is the letter, after all. It was written in a real time, in a real place, in the first century A.D. We don't know who the original recipients of this letter were, at least ethnically or geographically. We do know that they were described in this way. These believers are those who are called. In fact, this seems to be the first description of the recipients of this letter to those who are called. Now, of course, in those days, to be called was not to be called on a cell phone or an ancient telephone. It seems, sounds funny to say that since when I grew up, you could talk on a telephone. It was all corded. You didn't have cordless phones and all those kinds of things. But the idea of being called here is being called out from the world by God. In other words, these are the people who believe in him and are part of his family because he started the work of faith in them. He called them out from the world. Now, there was nothing in them. There is nothing that they deserve this calling there is nothing by their biological descent or by their good works or by their moral lifestyle or anything like this. These are people, for whatever reason, God alone knows why he chose you or me who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ called out from the world. They're called. But they were called in order to be loved. It says, beloved in God the Father. Actually, the word is a participle here, those being loved by the Father. In other words, those who are called are loved, and they're loved in a special way. Yes, God does love the world, and he gives gifts to the just and the unjust, but those who are called, he gives a special kind of love because he loved us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for us. And he loved us so much that he went to the ends of the earth to call us out of sin and darkness and the kingdom of this world 
to be given the love and grace and forgiveness of sins that brings them into the kingdom of light. We are loved by the Father with a love that started even before the foundation of the earth and continues to such an extent that this next phrase makes so much sense. They are kept or guarded for Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought that you are guarded? If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are told in Scripture, Jesus says, that you will never be let go. No one can pluck you from his hand. You are guarded in that sense. He will not let you be taken away by the evil one or by anybody else. He loves you so much that he will guard you. He is your good shepherd. He is more faithful to you than a mother to her child. He is a God who loves so much that he will guard us for Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean to be guarded for Jesus Christ? Well, this is a reminder that Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, then all of the church will be presented to him. And Christ himself will take that church and having removed all of our impurities, all of our sin, all of our deficiencies, he will present the church to the Father spotless and without blemish. We are guarded for Jesus Christ. This is who this letter is for. Those who are called, those who are loved, those who are guarded. And Jude also asks for a blessing to be placed upon us. He says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. You see, here we have already two sets of threes, don't we? First of all, believers described in three ways, called, loved, guarded. Secondly, calling a blessing upon God's people. May God bless you with his mercy, with his peace, and with his love. And of course, mercy is here, unlike most of the letters in the New Testament, the word mercy is used most of the other places. It's grace. Grace to you. This is the sense that this is total reliance upon the mercy of God. And may that mercy abound, be multiplied. In other words, may we see mercy upon mercy time and time again. And then, of course, when we see that mercy, we receive the peace that passes all understanding. This is not the peace of the world. Obviously, this is not the peace of the world because Jude is calling them to fight. But this is the peace that passes all understanding, the peace we have when we understand our sin is forgiven and God will bring it up against our account no more. And then, of course, a reminder that we want his love to be multiplied to us. His love in all of its forms. His love in forgiving us. His love in disciplining us. His love in shaping us and sanctifying us. His love in reminding us of his promises and the list can go on. Jude says, may you believers called, loved, and guarded until the day of Christ's return. May all of these blessings multiply upon you. I wanted to focus just a minute on the word guarded. I'm a parent, particularly now of three teenagers. I can still say that. Our daughter doesn't have her 20th birthday until the end of June. And as parents who are raising their children, what is one of the main purposes of our calling? Our calling is to guard our children until they reach maturity and establish their own households. It's not only to guard them, but to train them, to love them, to discipline them, 
to prepare them, in essence, to be men and women of the kingdom who are effectively witnessing to the world. And so the things and the decisions that we make and the choices that we have chosen for their paths and to guard them and protect them are so that when the time comes, then they are ready to face the world. But there's a problem. Our guarding is fallible. We make mistakes. Sometimes we don't choose the right things. Sometimes we sin even against our own children. And sometimes there is nothing we can do because we're not God in order to guard and protect our children from the wiles of the evil one. But God God guards his people for Christ's return. In this passage, when it says here that we are guarded for the return of Christ, it's a reminder that his guarding is infallible. His guarding is without error. His guarding will last forever, and his calling to the church, preparing Christ's people for Christ's return, his calling is in part, as he calls to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.20, to guard the deposit entrusted to you. Therefore, he calls to the church in verse 3 what most of the letter is going to be about. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You see, this, he says, is a necessity. Evidently, Jude wanted to write a letter. And he wanted to write a letter about their common salvation, about the unity they have in Christ. And about the basics of the gospel, reminding them of the joy of being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Spirit interrupted his plans. The letter that Jude intended was interrupted because of the state of the church and the conditions by which the church was facing degradation in its doctrine and in its lifestyle. So therefore, he says, I found it necessary. Instead, is the interpretation here, instead of just writing about our common salvation, instead he found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. You see, instead of focusing on the unity of the salvation we have in Jesus Christ, which is so wonderful a doctrine to focus on, even in a letter inspired by the Holy Spirit, exhorting and encouraging the church. This necessity to contend for the faith superseded the emphasis of unity at that moment in time. You see, unity is not at the cost of purity. Unity is not at the cost of compromise. It is necessary for the church to contend for the faith. Here's what he says, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. First of all, we're reminded, because it tells us what this faith was, this was a faith delivered to the saints. In other words, this was a faith given through the apostles, those whom Jesus sent out, that's what apostle means, those sent out. Those were sent out to give the gospel to the world. People like Peter and Paul and James and here Jude. Here he says, In one area, it is a complete faith. It is the gospel that has already been delivered. In that sense, it is complete. It is also delivered. 
You know what the phrase is sometimes when you have something that, that is guaranteed, it's sealed and delivered. Here it is, it's something delivered to the church. It's, it's not something that they don't have, it's something that they've already been given. But perhaps the most important word here is the holy faith. This is something he's going to talk about throughout this scripture. It is a holy faith. You see, in our time, we need to hear these messages again. What is our faith? Now, again, he's not talking just about our individual faith and coming to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about the faith as what our system of beliefs, the things that we believe, even a list of things perhaps that we believe, the doctrines that Paul would say were of first importance, things like this, that Jesus died, that he was risen from the dead, that he died for our sins according to the scriptures. These are the things he's talking about, this holy, complete, delivered faith. But there's a danger all around us, both in Jude's time and in today's time. The danger of new New gospels. People who would say, I have a new way for you. A new gospel. A new message. A new experience. You see, throughout the pages of history, we can turn in the church to those who would say, I've experienced something new. I've had new revelation from God. I have new messages, new gospels to give you. Whether it's the ancient heretics or whether it's the purveyors of cults, or whether it's the Joel Austins of the world with their smiles before the camera, new is not better. The gospel of the scriptures, which promote grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, is worth fighting for. The gospel that reminds us that on the one hand, we are terrible sinners deserving of death and damnation, And yet, on the other hand, God has chosen to call a people from that group and save them merely by his grace that they might be forgiven of their sin and have eternal life and in the end have a time without sin or crying and pain. This is the gospel. The gospel that tells us that there is true truth that is unbreakable and will stand forever A gospel that tells us there is one Savior and one mediator between men, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a gospel of faith worth fighting for. But we warily contend. Why do I say we warily contend? It's because the enemy is so dicey. It says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You see, we warily contend for the gospel. In fact, scripture reminds us we should be as wise as serpents and gentle as doves because we have a stealthy enemy. The enemy is not always going to announce himself and say, oh, by the way, even though I've been ordained a pastor in your pulpit, I want you to know that I'm actually a heretic standing before you and I'm going to take you away from the gospel of the scriptures. That's not usually how it works. It's not usual to make a publication, a a public announcement to announce to the media and everything that I'm going to start a heretical church. It's not necessarily true that the person is more interested in worldly things and satisfying his own appetites 
of lust and greed and everything else is going to say, oh, by the way, my purpose for you is not to proclaim the gospel, but is to engorge my pleasures. He's a stealthy enemy. He's someone that's not going to come in and announce those things, and we can't tell from a person's heart sometimes because of the things that they will say and the things that they will do that has an appearance of godliness but denying its power. We have a stealthy enemy who will creep in unnoticed. In other words, in our churches, there are probably those who do not really believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They may be there for other reasons to garner their reputation, to pocket or to uh, uh, highlight their pocketbooks, or to engage in behavior that the world frowns upon and that is dishonoring to God. It's a stealthy enemy. The enemy's not going to tell us all the bad things that they do or all the unbelief that they are committed to. This stealthy enemy is going to be largely those who will proclaim to be believers in Jesus Christ, but they will not believe in the scriptures and will begin teaching things opposing the doctrines of God. And they are those who in their private life will imbibe in immorality and then will in the end invite others to participate with them. They are stealthy. But it's not a new thing. This stealthy enemy is also an old enemy. It says here they were long ago designated for this condemnation. That's why I had Steve read for us from Numbers chapter 25. Perhaps you've heard of the man Balaam. He was known as a prophet. In fact, for some reason or some way, God used Balaam to give his word to people. Balaam was hired by this country against God's people, Midian, against God's people, Israel, to prophesy against them. And in, his, in a good way, Balaam said, I can only say what God tells me to say. And instead of cursing the people of God, he blessed them. But yet that very man, we are told by scripture in another place, that very man was the man who encouraged the Midianites rather than to curse the people of God, which he felt he couldn't do as a prophet who must tell God's word. Yet behind the scenes, he encouraged the Midianites to engage the Israelites in rank immorality associated with idolatry. And they did. Here was Balaam who had all on the surfaces of being a prophet of God, but underneath he was filled with the disgusting purveyance of immorality, seeking to gain riches from himself by another way. He had been condemned long ago. So that even when we come to the last book of the Bible, Revelation tells us about churches who have taken up Balaam's error and engaged in sexual immorality and in all of those things that are so common even in the church today. It's an old enemy. It's nothing new. From the days of the pages of Genesis to the present, we have been struggling in the church with disobeying God, disobeying our parents, disobeying authority, with immorality and greed and all of the things in between. It's an old, old enemy that's so attractive to the people of God. So we must be wary lest we fall or lest we be tempted to go alongside of them. Not only this, it is a wicked enemy. One of 
Jude's favorite words is going to be the word ungodly. This word is repeated throughout this scripture. It is a lack of being devout. Those who would not follow the ways of God, basically wicked people. He's reminding us that this enemy, even though they have an appearance of godliness, they may be proclaiming the truths of scripture, they may be seeking their own things behind the scenes, yet in their lives they are unable to please God. They are ungodly and wicked. Some of us don't like to hear that there are people within the church, even pastors and elders and deacons and Sunday school teachers and others, who when it comes right down to it are ungodly people because they really don't believe what they profess to believe and they don't live lives consistent with their calling in Christ. Instead, they are a perverted enemy. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. First of all, it says they pervert the grace of God. This word for pervert is the word to transform or change over. In other words, they look at the grace of God, and rather than be amazed at this grace with the words we just sung this evening, amazing grace, rather than be amazed at God's grace and look at the great doctrines of grace in Scripture, they might do what Paul says people question in Romans 6, verse 1. He asks the question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, there are those who are going to say, grace is such a wonderful thing, now we can do whatever we want. We can just live lascivious lives. We can go out and have a relationship with anybody we want. We can go out and take advantage of people to enrich ourselves. We can go out and gain our reputation by stepping on the throats of others. We can do whatever we want because we have God's grace. We have a get-out-of-jail-free card. They pervert the grace of God. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. But those who are in the church who would be the enemy of the people of God would say, no, it gives us license to sin. There are stories in the news, aren't there? Pastors that want anything from their congregation from expensive watches to new private jets. I don't think I want a private jet. But the idea here is that they want their due rather than understand that the preachers and leaders at times will be called to suffer for the sake of Christ. Teachers, in the news, we are told, engage in all kinds of immorality, even doing things that the world would consider wicked. And yet, the news marches on. In the news, it tells us that there are, there are churches claiming unity at the cost of purity. There were those who would go on the news forums and the news stations and engage in the societies and philosophies of the world and will say, it doesn't matter what you do in life, God still loves you. With a big smile on their face. 
When the whole point of the gospel is to call people to repent from their sin, to turn from it so that they will receive the grace of God. And having received the grace of God, then by God's grace begin to be sanctified. That is to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. And as they do this, they begin less and less to look like the world and more and more to look like the people of God called out as a pure and holy people. There are more and more who are confusing the ways of the world with the doctrines of Christ. Therefore, we must contend for the gospel, contend for the faith. We must not pervert the grace of God or the other thing that is even more radical here is to deny our master and Lord Jesus Christ. You see, to say that we believe in Christ and yet want to imbibe in the sin of the world continuously without repentance is denying that Jesus is our Lord. It's interesting, you notice it says master and Lord. This is a strange phrase in the New Testament. The Lord, Lord, Jesus Christ, is the the word we're, we're usually interested in or used to in Scripture. The word master is usually used for a despot. Someone who is ruling over somebody, perhaps even cruelly or ruthlessly. And we're reminded that once we become believers in Jesus Christ, we become slaves to Christ. In other words, it's not a bad thing to be a slave of Christ. It's a good thing because our master is good to us. Our master is gracious to us. Our master loves us as the good shepherd. But if we go deliberately to stray from him and to imbibe in the sins of the world and to teach things that are not true according to the scriptures, we're denying our master. When somebody says, if you become a Christian, then everything is going to be hunky-dory for you. And if you have enough faith, then God will solve all your problems. They're denying the lordship of Jesus Christ. If somebody says to you, it doesn't matter what, how you live your life. It doesn't matter if you have a relationship with someone outside marriage sexually. It doesn't matter God still loves you and we should accept and affirm everyone in those circumstances. The reason why we say no to this is not because we don't want this to take place or we think somebody is worse because they've chosen that particular sin. It's because God said don't do it. And if we say it's okay to do those things, we're denying the lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, the old enemy is still at work until the day of Christ's return. If you read perhaps some of the works of C.S. Lewis and the screw tape letters, it's a fascinating story of how we are deceived and distracted and disillusioned in the church. We might get them wanting something new, and don't we all? We want new things all the time. We want something improved, more exciting, and more relevant, as if God's word is irrelevant. Get them focused on being inviting and affirming people even before they repent so that we can all just get along and our numbers can increase. We want to get them thinking they can have the gospel and enjoy their sinful pleasures too. Have our cake and eat it too. But the old enemy still has 
the old gospel opposing it, doesn't it? The old gospel will not fail. When he says to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the, ascent, to the saints, when he reminds us of our common salvation and how he wanted to write that letter, he's reminding us the gospel's not going to fail. The enemy will fall. The enemy will fail. And in the end, the enemy will be judged by God. And it would be better for them if a millstone were tied around their neck and they were thrown into the depths of the sea than that they would lead little ones astray. But our master will not fall, though our leaders should fall, whether because of exposure even by a watching world which knows wickedness when it sees it, or whether it's by the judgment of God on Judgment Day, they will fall, but our Master Jesus Christ will not. Our salvation will not be taken away. Church of God, fight for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's not just saying you pastors. He's not just saying you Sunday school teachers. He's saying all of you who are called, loved, and guarded by God, it is your duty as believers to contend for the gospel of Jesus Christ to fight for that sake. Some people have asked me over the last few weeks, why is it that we have church membership? Well, one of the reasons we have church membership is if you don't have a membership in a church and you are a believer, you have no right to vote for officers. You have no right to uh, help in the election of a pastor. Uh, You have no right to participate in the ministries of the church with the oversight under the authority of the leadership. But the other part of this is you then have no right in our system of government to hold our leaders accountable. It is not just that the leaders, the elders, and the pastors and others are the line of demarcation between the world and the church, between the false teachings of the gospel and the true teachings of the gospel. It is also to, for the all of those in the church, even the members at times with their rights to complain or appeal, their rights to understand the decisions that are made in their church, to hold that church accountable upon the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he says to all of us, contend for the faith. Now it doesn't mean, like I said, it doesn't mean that we just want to get out our dukes and start fighting every opportunity we get. But it does mean to stand on the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel. It is worth fighting for. Let's pray. Father, as we go through this letter, help us to understand what you are calling us to do. Lord, it doesn't mean that we want to be divisive people or contentious people. It doesn't mean that we want to see by our sinful nature jealousy or impurity behind every corner and under every rock. But Lord, to be wary, to face the reality that in this world there are those who will falsely proclaim to be your people. There will be wolves in sheep's clothing. Help us, Lord, when we face the stealthy old enemy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be wise as serpents, gentle as doves, and to stand not upon our own ideas or truths, but, Lord, to stand upon the truth of our faith in Jesus Christ, that in him alone is salvation, and that he calls us to repent from our sins and to marvel in his grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name.